0: Malachi 1, verses 1 to 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved you, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're kicking off a brand new teaching series this weekend, The Father Heart of God. We're working our way through the book of Malachi. And the title of this weekend's message is Love Him. If you have your Bibles there, you can turn to Malachi chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. We'll be unpacking those verses. So I was asking the question, I was kind of working through this, how do we prepare our hearts for this holiday season? It's on us. We're already in it couple weeks we'll be uh, celebrating Thanksgiving and then shortly after that we will be heading into uh, Christmas and then the new year and bam, it, it will be over quick, very quick. And so how do we prepare our hearts for this season? There's a book in the Bible to prepare people for the first Christmas. It is the last book of the Old Testament. It's in the, in the area in the Bible known as the Minor Prophets. And it's the book of Malachi, also known by some as Malachi, the Italian prophet. Okay? <laughs> if you're familiar with that joke. These are God's final instructions to prepare us for the coming of Jesus at Christmas. And uh, here's the theme that I want you to get throughout this series that will take us to the end of the year. If you only knew the Father heart of God for you, if you only knew what He thinks about you, how He feels about you, what He wants to do in and through your life, it would change everything. It would absolutely change everything about you and about your life. You would love him, worship him, listen to him, be faithful to him, be generous to him, transforming every part of your life. Those are the, each of the themes that we'll be looking at throughout this book's study. Malachi 1, 6 and 2, 10 talk about God being our father. And I know this as a, as a dad and as a grandfather. I would give my life for my kids and my grandkids, more so for my grandkids, and uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just kidding, my, my adult kids can take care of themselves, they might have to give their life for me, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I would, I would give my life for my kids and my grandkids. And as I've reflected on that through the years, I, I begin to realize more than ever that there is no parent on earth that wants the very best for their children as much as your Father in heaven wants for you. That he wants for you. In fact, Matthew 7, 11 puts it this way. If you, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more does your heavenly Father want to give gifts to those who ask him, his children, whom he adores and loves. So this uh, series will uh, help to reinforce the father heart of God and our, our response to him, but it will, also, it will also help to bring healing to those of us who struggle with our concept of God as father. Because if when I say the father heart of God, it doesn't just stir excitement within you, there might be something wrong, there might be something broken, and it might have come from your earthly father. See, this can happen because of past hurts or neglect or abuse from our earthly fathers who, who no doubt helped to shape our concept of our heavenly father. So I hope that there's healing that comes to you through this and you can begin to understand who the, what the father heart of God is all about, who God is and so the three questions we're looking at, you can see there in your notes, why do we question God's love? How do we know God loves us? And by the way, when we talk about why do we question God's love, I'm going to give you some signs of what that looks like. So why do we question God's love? How do we know God loves us? And then what does it mean to love God? How do we respond to that? How do we love him? What does that look like in our own life? Would you just, let's just take a moment. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's ask for God's help as we study his word. I'd like to uh, pray Psalm 139, 23. Search us, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. And see if there be any grievous, sinful, anxious, envious way in us and lead us in the way everlasting, we pray. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. So take a look at this first question, why do we question God's love? Look at verse 1 of uh, Malachi, chapter 1, verse 1. This is how it begins, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by... Malachi, Malachi, his name means God's messenger. The word oracle means burden. So this is a burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by God's messenger, Malachi. Why is it a burden? Why would he call this a burden? Because it's heavy. Anytime God speaks to us, it's heavy. There's glory behind it. Glory means weight, significance, importance. So it's very weighty. There's a burden. God puts a burden on our hearts oftentimes to speak to people about him. And so it's a heavy word, and it's a burden because it's heavy, but it's a burden because it must be preached. You can't keep quiet about it. He can't keep quiet about it. Have you ever had those those words from God through his written word that you just, you can't keep quiet about it? In fact, that's how you should respond to the gospel. You can't keep quiet about the gospel. You need, you want, you desperately want others to hear the gospel message. This is that kind of a burden that he has. And uh, it's heavy, it must be preached, but it also, it's it's a burden because it contradicts our sinful nature. The world doesn't want to hear this. In fact, what's interesting about this book, 47 out of 55 verses are direct quotes from God more than any of the other minor prophets. And you really need to understand the context of this, of this, the historical setting. Let me kind of walk you through that. I don't want to lose you through this because it's really important to kind of give us a foundation of why he's saying these things to them and how it applies to us. So historical setting, the exiled Jews... 50,000 have returned to their homeland from Babylonian captivity. Remember, they were conquered by the Babylonians. They were dragged off to their homeland. Now they've got a new king, and the king says, you can go back to your homeland. And so they're thinking, whoa, the land of milk and honey. We can rebuild. They're all excited. In 515 B.C., they have rebuilt their temple, which was pretty amazing. For them to accomplish that Ezra visits them anybody familiar with Ezra the book of Ezra in the Old Testament so Ezra visits them in 458 BC 67 years later revitalizing them with God's Word and then about three years later after Ezra comes Nehemiah you guys familiar with Nehemiah in the Old Testament and uh, Nehemiah becomes their governor for 12 years leading them to rebuild their walls And and then Nehemiah returns back to his post in Shushan as the cupbearer for the king, and things begin to fall apart. Things begin to fall apart um, on the home front in his homeland. And so the prophet Malachi is called to bring the people back to the covenant love of God. And the conditions described in the book Of Nehemiah are the very things Malachi deals with in his book poor crops and faltering economy, intermarriage with non believers, defilement of the priesthood or leadership, oppression of the poor, lack of support for the temple, and a general disdain of God. So here's the general attitude of the people that he's addressing here things are not going as well now that they've returned to the land, all excited initially. Things are not going as well as they had hoped for, and therefore the people have become spiritually apathetic and cynical. Let me just say something about bad circumstances. Our bad attitude about our bad circumstances only makes things worse. Does that make sense? So, you, if you're going through bad circumstances, and, and you will go through bad circumstances, if you cop a bad attitude, you're just complicating the, the problem. And that's what's going on here. Things haven't worked out the way we thought, and they cop a bad attitude. They have apathy towards God and cynicism. You can see their cynicism by how they respond to, to the statements that God makes to them. And... Um, and so what, how would that apply to us? Well, as a believer in Christ, maybe you're in this place in your life where you're thinking, you know, I've been a believer for a while now, and my life is not what I thought it would be. Or my family is not put together like I thought it should be. Or my job or career or business, finances, whatever it might be, are, are nowhere close to what I had hoped for by this time. Or my life is more stressful and chaotic than I want it to be. In fact, maybe life's even beaten the living daylights out of you. And the attitude would be, a bad attitude towards all of that would be, God, you're not living up to your end of the bargain, because that's what they're basically saying. They're saying, God, if you don't care about my situation, then why should we care? You guys are probably familiar with expectations and the the role that expectations plays in our life. So, if you have ex- expectations as it relates to your marriage or parenting or that new job you just got or you've been working at for a while or, or any number of things, your expectations uh, may be up here. Let me give you an illustration here for, uh, before I, I, I walk you through that process. Is that let's just say that I was going to take you into a room, and before I walked you into that room, I said, This is a honeymoon suite and then I walked you into the room, you might probably respond by saying, ah, it's not quite what I thought. But if I were to take you into that very same room, and before I walked you into that room, I said, this is a jail cell. (laughs) How might your response be? Not so bad. Okay, let me go back to the illustration here. So expectations like right here, if you have expectations here, Regard, you know, whatever it might be in your life. And if life experiences come in down here, what's this gap called? So you got expectations, life experiences. This gap is called disillusionment, disappointment, despondency. That's what they're experiencing. They're just, they're they're apathetic spiritually, and they're cynical. They become bitter. And you can see it in their response. And so how does God address them right from the get-go? Here's how he addresses them. Verse 2, I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. Notice their response, though. But you say, how have you loved us? They're doubting God's love. There's that cynicism there. So the first sin Malachi confronts is their lack of love for God. And, and that is the first sin Jesus mentioned when he wrote to the seven churches in Asia Minor, Revelation 2, 4. It is first because lack of love for God is the cause of all other sins. And you notice their responses, like I said, it's very cynical and apathetic response. So this is kind of how it's working in their life. This is how it works in our life. Theology, you need to have good, healthy theology. Theology has to do with your head. But if you minus your doxology from your theology doxology has to do with your heart it's worship so theology minus doxology equals dead orthodoxy what's dead orthodoxy just come into church and check in the box okay did that read my bible today prayed whatever just kind of going through the motions without any emotion all form no substance that's what they're doing that's what's happening So dead orthodoxy is always a severing of the head from the heart producing apathy and cynicism. If you're in a place of apathy and cynicism, it's because you have severed your head, your theology, from your doxology that should move you to worship and to have an encounter with the living God through your theology, which is life-liberating and soul-satisfying when you do that. But that's not where they are, and that's oftentimes where we are, in our struggle. And, um, and so let's talk about some signs. What, were, what would be some signs of doubting God's love? I've got a list of them right here. This isn't a complete list, but this gives you some. Signs of questioning God's love. You could add to the list. In fact, what I want you to do is circle the ones you are most prone to during hardship, it be, you know, there's almost kind of, we all have this built within us, it's part of the reticular activating system within our brain, it's kind of that automatic pilot, and so it's that knee-jerk reaction, it's uh, automatic pilot, it's becomes second nature, out of just second nature, this is what we move into, what would most represent you, anxiety, bitterness, depression, envy, self-absorption, which is, would be pride, Self-pity is also a part of pride. By the way, anxiety and depression can also come through uh, physiological issues too. So discounting that, we're talking more psychological here and spiritual in our relationship with God. These are all signs. When you have anxiety, when you're overwhelmed by anxiety over your job or your kids or whatever, you're doubting his love. When you have bitterness, you're doubting his love or depression or envy or self-absorption or self-pity or cynicism or apathy, helplessness or hopelessness. You're doubting God's love. So, so why do we question God's love? Because we are, here's the next on your fill in the blank, because we are deceived by the pleasures of life. We are deceived by the pleasures of life. Psalm 73 it's a beautiful psalm. I think it's got to be one of my favorite. And it mirrors, it's mirrored uh, by Psalm 37. 37, 73, they're very similar. But Psalm 73, when you read through that, you see that this psalmist has an attitude really about why the, why the wicked are so wealthy and healthy, He's really, really upset. He's envying the wealth and the health of the wicked. And, but as you read through the psalm, you say, wow, this guy's got a really a bad attitude about his own circumstances. He says, here, I'm suffering, and I know the living God, and yet I, wa- I look out over the landscape of this culture, and the, and the wicked are prospering. And they're like, like living life to its fullest. And they're really enjoying life. And he's really upset, and then halfway through the psalm, He goes into the sanctuary. He has an encounter with God, and it changes everything. And the rest of the psalm is just, it's absolutely breathtaking. It's beautiful because he realizes what he has in God. And what he has in God doesn't even come close to, I mean, what they have doesn't even come close to what he has in God. In fact, there's there's some verses that we had our kids memorize a number of years ago, when they were growing up in our home, and it was Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. You guys familiar with those verses? It says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he knows God. So that what that verse is saying, that it says that the, the smartest people on this planet, the most athletic people on this planet, the richest people on this planet have nothing on those who know God, don't have anything on us who have a relationship with God. And so that's the, that's the realization that the psalmist comes to in Psalm 73. He realizes, he says, wow, what I have in you is so much better by far, even if I have to go through suffering. It's an amazing realization. And so oftentimes we get deceived by the pleasures of life. That's we begin to doubt his love. And by the way, let me just say that there's no pleasure on this planet that compares to the pleasure that you can have in Jesus Christ. Did you know that? I mean, that's, that's reality. That's reality. So here's, uh, here's the next reason why we question God's love, because we are disillusioned by the pain of life. So we become deceived by the pleasures of life. We can also become disillusioned by the pain of life. Uh, Isaiah 41.10, that's why Isaiah 41.10 says this. He says, fear not, for I am with you. This is a great memory verse, by the way, when you're going through hard times. Fear not, for I will be with you. So if you're going through hard times, listen to this. This is God speaking to you. Fear not, for I will be with you. And then he next says, do not be dismayed. Why would he say that? Because we often are dismayed when we go through really hard times. God, where are you in this? What's going on? I don't see your hand working. I'm confused. That's what it means to be dismayed. He says, do not be dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand so, so, so what, what is he saying in that don't be dismayed he's saying I'm still with you I'm still working for you I'm still involved with you whether you can see me or not I've got you covered we'll talk more about that as we work through, through our notes so, so here's the antidote for both of these deception by the pleasures of life disillusionment by the pain of life here's the antidote Every day you need to get up and pursue full and lasting pleasure in God. To where you find so much satisfaction in Him. In fact, let me let me ask you, when was the last time you found so much satisfaction just in your interaction with God? Maybe reading His Word, singing praise songs to Him, or hearing praise songs, or or prayer. As you engage Him, there's a pleasure in that. I'm going to talk more about it next week when we talk about worship because that's what worship is. It's, it's really about finding our deepest satisfaction in Him. And that's, that's what you need to do every day. When you get up, pursue full and lasting pleasure in God. So that answers that question. Let's, let's take the next one. How do we know God loves us? How do we know that God loves us? So, so how many, just show of hands, how many would say, yeah, I'd, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to grow in my love for God and others? Show of hands. Okay. Okay, some of you needed to raise your hand. Okay, because so I've been hanging out with you lately. And so I think everybody, I, I, it should be just a natural response of, of every believer. Yes, yes, that's my, I want to grow in my love for God and others. That's why the Bible says, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's why you exist. That's your purpose. That's, the purpose. that's a great purpose statement. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. And so how do you increase in your capacity to love God and love people? You work hard, pull, your up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, come on, you can do it, all of that, come on. I'm gonna, this next week, I'm going to become a more loving person. How's that going to work out for you? Not so good, not so good. Here's how you do it. This is how you begin to grow in your love for God and others is by a regular and consistent experience of his love for you. And I'm telling you, you experience his love regularly, consistently. See, it's one thing to know that God loves you. I hear people say, oh, yeah, God loves you. God loves you. God loves me. And then I say I'm filled with anxiety and anger and bitterness and envy and all of these negative emotions. I say, you don't believe that, do you? Because I see all these symptoms in your life that would say otherwise. You don't really believe that he loves you because if you did, all of that would go away. And, and you need to experience his love. So it's one thing to know that he loves you. It's altogether another to have an experience on your heart. This is what you need to have regularly as a believer in Christ. This is what should be happening in your life is that regularly, you have an overwhelming experience that God, your Father in heaven, is sweeping you up into his arms and smothering you with kisses and affection and love. And you're just like, ah, oh, yes. Oh, I've never found more pleasure than what I have in you, God. Thank you. Thank you. It's it's almost overwhelming for me at times. It brings tears to my eyes. I mean, it fills me with joy. That peace dispels the the anxiety and all the junk in my life. Just a few moments with Him. I mean, this isn't wishful thinking. You are having an encounter with the living God, who made that possible, at the cost of the death of His Son. That is amazing. Nothing like it. Nothing like it at all. And that's how you will increase in your love for him and others. Sin is what we do when we are not satisfied in the love of Christ. So how do we get satisfied in the love of Christ? Here's how he shows his love for us. God's verbal expression of love. That's your next fill in the blank on your notes. So God's clear statement of his love is throughout Scripture. You've got one example of it right here in Malachi chapter one, verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord. This is covenant love, which is mentioned six times in this book. So six times he talks about covenant love. That's why I built the series based on this covenant love, the father heart of God. Because six times in there, we're gonna come across the word covenant. So we gotta understand what covenant is. Uh, One of many great... uh, Explanations of Covenant is found in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11. I won't read it, but let me just paraphrase it, uh, give you a brief summary of it. It's uh, The covenant love is expounded clearly in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11. This is what, what this covenant love is. Imagine God looking you in the eyes, and you can imagine that through Christ Jesus, the face of Jesus. Imagine him looking you in the eyes and saying, I love you. I have chosen you to be my treasured possession, not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of who I am and what I've done. I have rescued you. I have redeemed you. And then at the end of these verses, he says this. He says this. I am a faithful God who keeps his covenant with those who love and obey him. So let me ask you this question. Are God's blessings unconditional or conditional? They're both. Yes would be the answer. Because at the front end of that, we see that he's, uh, he's giving them unconditional love. And then if they engage with him with his covenant, if they say yes to this covenant, then what is, what is the requirement there? The condition is that you, would, that you would just love and obey him back. You would respond to him. I was, as I was reflecting on I was thinking about that. And there should be those moments in your life where you're just thinking about, you, you chose me, God, and you love me. I'm your treasured possession? You treasure me? You adore me? You should be reflecting on that, basking in the reality of that until it lights up in your heart. And only the Holy Spirit can really do that. So you ask the Holy Spirit, oh, make this, make this real to my heart. I was thinking about these, uh, these verses this last week as it related to my own life, and I, and I could see why God would love me, <laughs> but I have the hardest time seeing how God could love some of you. <laughs> no, no, really. Okay, that was a joke. That was obviously a joke. No, because I, I wanted to say that because if you really look in your heart, because there have been times in my life where I've actually thought that, and you have too. I can see why he loved me. I got it together. That guy is a scoundrel. That person is a jerk. That person, I could see. I don't even love him. I don't know how God could love him. No, no, no. You don't understand covenant love. You don't understand covenant love. Covenant love is not achieved but received. God offers that to you this morning. Maybe if you've never received it before, this would be a great morning for you to open your heart to his covenant love, to say yes to his covenant love, respond by loving him back and obeying him and giving your life to him. Malachi is calling the people back into covenant relationship with God. You see, it's God's love that brings repentance. This whole book is about repentance. But the foundation of this is covenant covenant love, And um, so Malachi is calling the people back into covenant relationship with God. It's God's love that brings repentance. It is not our repentance that brings God's love. Don't reverse that. That becomes very religious. And, And by the way, what Malachi is showing us here, what God is showing us here, is that this is great leadership, parenting, grandparenting advice. Here's what it is. You always connect before you correct. Always connect before you correct. In other words, love is the bridge that must sustain the truth that you send over the bridge. I mean, this is just good conflict resolution skills and communication skills. And you're always working to connect with that person so that you can speak truth to them. Sometimes when you, you speak truth and they respond with defensiveness or whatever, you go back to connecting. You try to connect, reconnect before you're able to bring that to them. And that's, that's really important. And in fact, healthy covenant relationships will have three things. I don't know if this was on your notes, but you can write these three things down. This is what it looks like, is that you will feel valued, included, and empowered so healthy relationships, so, so whether it be marriage or parenting or even on the job. I asked a guy this a couple of weeks ago. I said, do you feel valued at your workplace? He goes, nope. Do you feel included? Nope. Do you feel empowered? Nope. Feel controlled. I go, wow, that doesn't sound like a very good work environment. And, and so, you know, if I were to ask him the question, how, how about your marriage? Do you, do you think your wife? feels valued, included, empowered. Another way of looking at these words would be valued would be cherished or included would mean that they belong. Or empowered would mean they don't feel controlled, but they know they have responsibility in that relationship. That, those are, and those are the characteristics you look for. And in fact, most breakdowns in marriage, family, and parenting And even businesses can come from missing any of those or all of those. So let's define covenant versus consumer. Here's what I want you to do. Turn to the person next to you and see if you can give a quick definition of the difference between consumer relationship and covenant relationship. And it's all around us in our culture today. Not so much the covenant, but really the consumer is all around us. And so there's a difference between consumer relationship, covenant relationship. Real quick, see if the person next to you knows the difference between the two. So here's my definition. Covenant, I will be there no matter what. That's what God says to us. I will be there no matter what. The relationship is more important than my needs. The relationship is more important than my needs in that relationship. Consumer is I'll be there only to the degree you'll be there. That's our culture. That's marriages in our culture. It's consumer. My needs are more important than the relationship, so it's important to really understand the difference between covenant and consumer. And by by, by the way, it's okay to have a consumer relationship with your grocer. Does that make sense? If you're shopping over here at Fry's and and the and the quality drops and the prices increase, find another grocer. But don't do that in a marriage relationship. You don't do that with a church. You don't do that with your kids. Find some more kids. Some of us have thought of that though, haven't we? It's like, we felt like that. I'm gonna trade these kids in for new kids. No, it's covenant relationship. It's covenant relationship. Now what makes the problem here is that if you're in a marriage relationship and you're the covenant, you have covenant with them and they have consumer with you, that's called exploitation and even abuse. By the way, let me just say this. It is never, it is never loving to let someone sin against you. It's never loving to let them continue to abuse you. You, you draw the line. There's, you empower them to take responsibility. You value them. You include them. And at the same time, you empower them and say, I'm going to hold you accountable to this. This is, this is mutual here. And, and that's important. That's part of it. Now, let me address an issue, and I'm going to address a lot of issues throughout this series. We're going to talk about singleness and how to find a spouse, and, and we're going to talk about marriage and the marriage covenant of about three or four weeks into it, so we're going to really get get into some pretty good stuff here through this book, because he addresses all these issues, but I need to deal with this issue that I hear rampant in our culture today as it relates to love, the definition of love in our culture today, and I hear it through people saying, we fell in love, and then all of a sudden, two months later, two years later, they say, we fell out of love. You guys know what I'm talking about? I just fell out of love. No, that was not love. That was lust. Lust. There's a major difference between lust and love. Lust is spelled G E T. It's, it's all about what can I get. Love is spelled G I V E. What can I give? So when you hear people saying that, they didn't fall in and out of love. That has nothing to do with love. They don't understand what covenant love is all about. Love is a commitment and a promise. It is saying, I'll be there no matter what. The relationship is more important than my needs. And in that relationship, you and they feel valued, included, and empowered. And that comes from God. And that's how he relates to us. And that's that covenant love. No matter what you're going through, God is saying, I will be there for you. I'm always there for you. I love you. I've chosen you. You're my treasured possession. I have rescued you. I've redeemed you. Those are the things that just should just bask in the reality of every day. And then that will help you with your covenant love relationships, whether it be friendships or marriage or church. And I think that's important so God's verbal expression of love here's the next one and this is we're gonna get into a little heavier theology here so you're gonna have to hang in there with me Uh, we're gonna talk about God's electing love so God's verbal expression of love and now how does God show his love for us God's electing love did you notice that in Malachi uh, 1 verse 2b through 3 is not Esau Jacob's brother declares the Lord yet I have loved Jacob verse 3 but Esau I have hated did that shock you a little bit this is God speaking What does that mean? I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So immediately the question should come up, you know, if God is love, if God is love, 1 John 4, 16, then how can he hate anyone? Good question. Well, you need to understand the context here. This is in reference to the nations that came out of Jacob and Esau. So he's actually talking to nations. And the word... The word loved is choice rather than affection. And hated is rejection rather than animosity. Similar use of... of this, these words are found in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's Jesus speaking. So he's using that same kind of idea between it's about rejection, it's about choice and rejection. So, so this brings up the age-old debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. So let's get... Down in the middle of this, okay, just for a moment. Because I think it's really important for you to know this and understand this. So, So, so what is the main difference between Calvinism and Arminianism in salvation? Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say Calvinism and Arminianism, and that's okay. But if you do understand, I'm gonna explain what I mean by that. So, here another question would be: what was the decisive cause of your faith in Christ? God or yourself? So, Calvinist would say that the decisive cause of my faith was God. Arminianism would say that the decisive cause of my faith was me. So, who's right? What is the answer? Both. Both. I believe, I believe that both are right, but I believe that God is always the initiator of our relationship. He comes after us with His love, and that's what transforms us. See, the Bible is clear that God has chosen who will be saved before the creation of the world. That's in Ephesians 1:4. and it describes believers as chosen chosen you're chosen Romans 8:33 Colossians 3:12 1 Peter 1:2 1, and it also refers to uh, believers it describes believers as not just chosen but also elect it uses that word elect and that's Matthew 20 uh, Matthew 24:22 Romans 11:7 and 2 Timothy 2:10 2, it's in the scripture and yet and yet at the same time, the Bible also says that God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. 2 Peter 3:9. The Bible also says that we are responsible for our sin and for receiving Christ as Savior. Romans 3.23, John 3.16, Romans 10, 9, and 10. In fact, verse 13 of Romans 10 says this: whoever, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you got this combination of divine sovereignty, human responsibility, working. I love what J.I. Packer says from his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He calls the principles of divine sovereignty and human responsibility an antinomy. Kind of awkward sounding word, but it's antinomy. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y, antinomy. And he describes it here. Listen to what he says. An antinomy... Exist when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. Each is true on its own, but you do not see how they can both be true together. An antinomy is neither dispensable nor comprehensible. Accept it for what it is and learn to live with it. Think of the two principles as complementary to each other. Use each within the limits of its own sphere of reference. So it's, it's, I think it's part of the like, similar mystery to uh, hypostatic union of Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, or the, even the Trinity. I think it's in that category. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. How does that work out? I'm not really sure. But the Bible teaches both. So, how do you know if someone's kind of leaning to the divine sovereignty to the exclusion of human responsibility and someone's leaning to human responsibility to the exclusion of divine sovereignty, which I tended to do that early on in my Christian faith? And you need to have a balance in both. Well, if you believe everything is fixed despite our choices, you're going to be passive. It's called fatalism. You're going to go, What's the use? God already chooses, so I can't make any difference in this. That's called fatalism, and it's not biblical. That's not true. Here's the other extreme. In this, if you believe our choices actually determine the future, then you should be paralyzed. That's called being fearful. So if you find if you if you tend to go towards fatalism or fearfulness, you're not living out the balance of those two beliefs. Healthy response would be to work hard in your life. Be responsible, but be calm by leaving the results in God's hands. That's why I like uh, Proverbs twenty-one thirty-one: The horse is made ready for battle, but victory is in the hands of the Lord. You do your best. You honor God. You live for his glory, and then you leave the results in his hands. You just say, God, I'm resting in you. And that's the, the, the great balance Uh, between the two. So here at Desert Breeze, this is what we teach, just so that you'll, you'll know what we teach. We teach that Christianity believes historical events are determined by God, that's divine sovereignty, through our choices, human responsibility. So divine sovereignty and human responsibility work together like two pedals on a bike. They should both be taught in balance. We believe that both Calvinism and Arminianism are within the pale of orthodoxy. There are churches in the valley that would would disagree with that, and they would. I've heard Calvinists uh, despise Armenians, and I've heard Armenians have animosity towards Calvinism. We happen to believe that they both fit within the pale of orthodoxy. We can debate them but not divide over them and not push either one of them to extremes. So we believe here in the essentials, there should be unity. In the non-essentials, we believe it falls into that category of non-essentials, but they they do need to be taught in balance. Is God sovereign? Yes. Are we responsible? Yes. Yes. And they need to be taught together, but in all things love. So in the essentials, there, is, there, there should be unity. In the non-essentials, liberty, but in all things love. Let me, okay, so <laughs> I said all that. Don't, don't miss this. You Don't miss the love of God and in in him electing you. Because it's so easy. And I, I've seen this. It's just, it's insane. I don't understand it. People debate over those things, and then they miss The electing love of God, that He chose me, He loves me. Don't miss that. And I'm responsible. I need to respond to Him, I need to interact with Him. It's called a relationship. And so people, they can debate it, and it's just, it's crazy. And they miss the most important part of this. Listen to what uh, Spurgeon says. Whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it is written in the word of God as with an iron pin, and there's no getting rid of it. To me, it is one of the sweetest and most blessed truths in the whole of Revelation, and those who are afraid of it are so because they do not understand it. If they could but know that God had chosen them, it would make their hearts dance for joy. So, his electing love should make your heart dance for joy. He chose me. He loves me. Man, when that reality hits you in the heart, just, oh, it's overwhelming. There's nothing like it. Let me paraphrase another thing that uh, Spurgeon said How do I know that I am chosen? That's, that would be a good question, wouldn't it? So, how do I know if I'm chosen or I'm not chosen? It's a great question let me ask you this do you have a deep longing to know love obey and worship and serve and enjoy god if you say yes then you are chosen if you say no then you are not chosen and if you were chosen you would only be miserable according to your own confession And it could be, it could be that you just need to hear the proclamation of the gospel. And when you hear that and it awakens you to the reality of the glory and the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, oh my goodness, your heart is stirred. You're chosen. You're chosen. God's verbal expression of love, God's electing love, which should be, should make your heart dance for joy. And then God's Evident blessings of love. This gets, a. if you thought that was hard, this kind of gets a little bit harder in really understanding. I love studying the Old Testament. It forces you to have to really dig deep and to really understand the historical context and what is God saying through this. And when you get to that, it's just, it's breathtaking, it's beautiful, it's weighty, it's significant, it's important. Verses four and five, he says, if Eden says, we are, shat- we are shattered but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So, so what's, what is being said here? Edom is the epitome of rebellion towards God. And in fact, this is humanism and existentialism on display. So so we don't need God. We can rebuild on our own. And that's where our country is actually headed. That's the mindset that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we can conquer. We can overcome. We can do that. And, and, And hey, there's no doubt that God has placed within us a lot of resilience because we are image bearers. All of us are image bearers of God. So there's certainly... There's that capacity within all of us to overcome difficulties. But that ability to overcome those difficulties came from God. And even more so comes from God when we lean on him and look to him and trust him. And all he's saying is that they're not going to be able to rebuild. They're not going to be able to rebuild. So here's a little bit of the historical background. God brought judgment upon both the descendants of Jacob, the Jews, and Esau, Eden. To the Jews, the Babylonian invasion was purifying, but to Eden, it was punitive. So I gotta deal with another question here that oftentimes, when I come across Christians who are going through a real hard time, I've had them say this to me, is God punishing me? Is he punishing me for what I've done in the past? And I say emphatically, no, no. No. All of that punishment was placed on Jesus. It's purifying. When you go through hard times, it's purifying. It's not punitive. It's purifying. Here's what God's up to through hard times. He wants you to run into his Big daddy arms so that he can embrace you and love you and smother you with kisses. That's what he's doing. That's the first thing. Run into his arms to help you to see how much you need him. But he's also wanting to grow you up and mature you, and he's also wanting to get you to heaven with him for all eternity. He's working, and it's purifying, not punitive. So God brought judgment upon both the descendants of Jacob, the Jews, and Esau, Edom. And the Jews were able to return and rebuild, but the Edomites were never able to return and rebuild even to this very day. So here's what you need to keep in mind. When you go through hard times, this is what should come to mind, and this is his evident love. This is what the Bible tells us over and over again. Whether you can see his hand in your circumstances or not, it doesn't matter. This is what he's doing. This is what he's doing. God is at work lovingly, skillfully, powerfully, in the worst of times doing a thousand things we can't see with our finite minds for our good and his glory. Listen to me, if you're going through a hard time, when you go through a hard time, listen, listen, you can trust, you can trust his loving, wise control of your life. He's still working. He has your best interest at heart. No matter what you're up against, he is for you, not against you. If he didn't spare his own son in rescuing you, he's not gonna spare anything else in taking care of you. That's the point of this. Even in our circumstances. So when we face hard circumstances, we can basically say, Say this, my bad things are going to work out for my good. My truly good things can never be taken from me, and the best things are yet to come. God's in control. God loves us. He's going to take care of us. That's part of his love for us. He's perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, unlimited in power. I was meditating on a couple of verses this last week, Psalm 77, 19. It's part of my reading through the Old Testament. And, um, and it says, basically, the, the writer says this, Check, check this out. I paraphrase the first part, but I, I, I'm quoting the last part of this. They're basically saying, "You have led us, protected us, guided us. Yet your footprints were unseen. When we looked at our circumstances, we couldn't see your hand in our circumstances. And yet now we know we know that throughout all of that, you were there and you loved us and you were still working and you always have our best interest at heart." See, that's the the doubt. That's where we begin to become deceived by the pleasures of life. We think that He's holding out on us. It goes all the way back to the garden. God doesn't have your best interest at heart. If you obey God, you're going to be miserable. That's insane. That's insane. No, no. Fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where fullness of life is found. It's only found in Him, it's found in Him. He is always working for your good and his glory, whether you can see it or not. Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-seven 27 was another great verse that I was, as I was thinking about and, and meditating on this last week. The eternal God is your dwelling place. It's your home, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is what it's saying. That's why as I was thinking about it, reflecting on it, he says that you can never fall so low in suffering and sin that God's arms are still even lower, even lower than whatever, whatever situation you're in, they're lower to rescue and redeem you. His everlasting arms. I, th- I was thinking about that, le- everlasting arms. His arms to, to sweep you up into his arms of love and, and smother you with his affection and, and there's so much more we could say, but look at this. At the end of the story, this is what he says in verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. What is he saying there? He's saying, we know the end of the story. This is the end of the story. We will proclaim your name because you, everything you do is perfect and righteous and holy and loving and gracious and merciful God is sovereign over his people in all of history. His purposes will never be thwarted. God always has our best interest at heart. And his best interest for us will never be thwarted. So how do we know God loves us? God's verbal expression of love, God's electing love, which should make your heart dance for joy and God's evident blessings of love, his providential hand working for our good and his glory. Okay, we got this last part here and it'll go fast. Believe me. Here we go. Get ready to write fast. So if you bask in the reality of his covenant love, Regularly and respond to Him by loving Him with all of your heart, you will be content in all of your circumstances because you will always have what you most want, and that's Him. <laughs> you have Him. You have Him. What more do you need? You have Him. And so, you, this is how that looks. This is what this contentment looks in Him and this response of love to Him, believing all that He says. Whether it's hard to believe or not. Here's the second one obeying all that he commands, whether I agree with him or not. Here's the third one. This is the hardest accepting all that he sins, whether I understand it or not. Anybody have circumstances in your life that you still can't make heads or tails out of and you're just going, still spin your head around, show of hands? That you're just going, what is this all about? And so, what do you do? You accept all that he sins, whether you understand it or not, because you realize, because you have this 50-20 perspective found in Genesis, Genesis fifty twenty. of, remember, Joseph, he looked his perpetrators in the eyes, and he said, you intended to harm me. He was fully aware of the injustice and the abuse. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God is using that pain. He's recycled that pain, accepting all that he sins, whether I understand or not, thanking him for all that he gives, both temporal and eternal. You, have, you ought to be on a high every day just with that one, both temporal and eternal, temporal and eternal, just thinking about what you have temporally and then eternally, more so eternally. It's just like, oh my goodness, every good and perfect gift comes from God. But most importantly right here and foundational is enjoying all that he is in in and of himself. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We're going to talk more about that next week. But let me ask you this question. Are the blessings of God conditional or unconditional? Yes. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus Christ absolutely fulfilled the conditions of the law so that God could love us absolutely unconditionally. So that creates within us a paradoxical obedience. I mean, we avoid sin like crazy because we love him and, and want to obey him. But when we fail, and we will fail, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and we run back into the arms of our daddy who loves us and adores us. So next weekend we'll talk about worship or how to honor him. It's Malachi 1, 6 through 14. If you're new here, I would love to meet you. If you need prayer, we would love to pray for you. I'll be up front here at the end of the service. Let's bow our heads, let's pray. So Father God, we we take refuge in the finished work of Christ on the cross for us. And we pray, Ephesians 3, 16 through 19, that according to the riches of your glory, may you grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith that we, being rooted and grounded in in his love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth of this love, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. We, and as we, as we learn to bask daily in your covenant love, may we grow in our love for you and others, we pray. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.